Chapter Nine of the Man Eater by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Nine. Washington Scott, in the act of dressing for the return of his mistress, heard strange sounds that filtered upward from the first floor to his room upon the third. Seizing his lamp, he made his way slowly downward upon his old and shaky legs. He was in the act of turning the knob of the door at the foot of the stairway that opened into the second-floor balcony when he heard footsteps rushing frantically past. Cautiously he opened the door and peered out in time to see a man dodge into Gordon's room and close the door. So quickly had the figure disappeared that the old butler had not recognized the intruder, but he was sure that it was not Mr. Gordon. He would investigate. Slumping laboriously into the hall, he turned in the direction of Gordon's room. He was just opposite the old-fashioned wardrobe built into the wall near Gordon's door, when the rush of strange footfalls ascended the stairway at the opposite end of the hall, causing him to turn his eyes in that direction. "'Gord almighty!' shrieked the old man as his eyes fell upon the hideous visage of the wide-jawed carnivore. It was too late to retreat to the stairway down which he had just come. He had heard the lock turn in Gordon's door. There was only the old-fashioned cupboard in the wall beside him. Not in fifty years had Washington Scott moved with such celerity as he evinced in the next quarter-second. With a wrench he tore the door open. Like a youthful hurdler he vaulted into the dark closet, slamming the door to after him. Within was a crash of broken flooring, and then silence. The lion rushed past the old man's hiding place without even pausing to investigate. He was after bigger game than a decrepit old darky. As Taylor dashed into his room, Gordon, awakened by the noise, sprang from his bed. Taylor, knowing that the time for stealth was past and that the whole house would be aroused in an instant, drew his revolver from his side pocket of his coat and fired point-blank at Gordon as the latter rose in his bed. The bullet passed through Gordon's pajama coat and pinged into the wall behind him. Then Taylor, with a mental nine more, pulled the trigger again. There was no responding report and Gordon was upon him. Frantically, Taylor pressed the weapon to his victim's body and pulled the trigger, futilely. In returning the clip to the automatic when it had fallen to the ground from his nervous fingers earlier in the evening, he had reversed it, so that the cartridges were pointed to the rear, jamming the mechanism after the first shot had exploded the cartridge already in the chamber. Once in Gordon's grasp, Taylor realized how hopelessly he was outclassed. The clean life of his antagonist found Taylor helpless in the other's power. Yet the man fought on desperately, for he knew that a long prison term awaited him, should he be captive now. Around and around the room the two men struggled. Taylor beat madly at Gordon's face, but the latter sought the other's throat, striking only occasionally, and then only when a blow could be well delivered and effective. In the hall beyond, the lion had halted before the door to sniff and listen. From within came the sounds of combat and the scent of friend and foe. The great beast opened his wide jaws and roared out a thunderous challenge, a challenge that sent Washington Scott cowering in terror to the furthermost recesses of the little closet and brought Gordon to a momentary pause of wonder in the battle he was waging for his life in the guest chamber of the Scott mansion. But Richard Gordon had no time to give then to an investigation of the terrifying roar just without his room. He wondered, but he fought on, slowly but surely overcoming the weakening tailor. The lion pushed against the door with his forepaw. It did not open. He clawed at the panels, madly, thunderously. No frail wood can long withstand the mighty force. Splinters were torn away. The two men within the room heard. The one was terrified and the other wondering. Gordon was pushing Taylor back against the table, further and further, when the latter, in a sudden momentary burst of energy, struggled up and fought his conqueror back a step or two. Beneath their feet lay a rug, rumpled and twisted as they passed back and forth across it. 
Gordon's foot caught in it as Taylor surged against him, and he fell heavily backward, striking his head against the edge of a chair. Taylor could scarce credit the good fortune that had saved him at the eleventh hour. Gordon lay unconscious beneath him. The line was battering the door to pieces just beyond. Behind was an open window leading onto the roof of the veranda. Taylor half started to make a break from escape from the lion when the object of his mission rushed to his mind. He had risked too much to abandon all now when success, such as it was, lay in his grasp. Hastily he sprang to his feet and ran to the chair where Gordon's clothes lay. As he snatched up a garment and began to run hastily through it, a panel crashed in beneath the lion's powerful blows, and Taylor saw the gleaming yellow eyes glaring at him through the aperture. With a gasp of terror the man ran his hand inside the coat. His fingers came in contact with a long manila envelope, and he knew that he had won. Stuffing the prize into his own pocket, he turned and scrambled through the window to the roof of the veranda, ran to the edge, and lying upon his stomach lowered himself quickly until he hung by his hands. Then he let go and dropped to a soft landing in a clump of bushes beneath. Almost simultaneously the last of the door fell in beneath Ben's battling, and the lion sprang into the room. For just an instant he lowered his muzzle to the face of the prostrate Gordon, sniffed, whined, and then caught Taylor's spore and followed it through the window onto the roof. Gordon, but momentarily stunned, sat up just in time to see the hindquarters of the lion disappearing through the window. Leaping to his feet, he followed and looked out. He saw the great beast approach the spot where Taylor had dropped to the ground. For a moment the lion stood there measuring the distance. It was too great a leap for so heavy a beast, except as a last resort. Turning quickly away, the animal trotted to the far end of the roof. Below him there was a low shed, and a moment later the carnivore was slinking through the shrubbery of the Scott grounds, hot upon the trail of the fleeing Taylor. Gordon, convinced that the lion had followed Taylor, though filled with wonder not only that a savage jungle beast should be roaming at large in peaceful Virginia, but as well that the brute should have passed him by without harming him, ran from his room, calling to the servants. The old butler, hearing his voice, answered him in trembling tone from his hiding place. "'Mr. Gordon,' he cried, "'where is he? Am he went?' Gordon paused. The voice came apparently from the closet behind him. "'Where are you?' he asked. "'I'm here, in these here clothes hamper. I'm stuck fast. If he am went, please come and help me out of here.' "'He's went all right,' replied Gordon, opening the door of the closet to find that the washstand had broken through the bottom and so tightly wedged that it required the combined efforts of both of them to liberate him. Other house servants were timorously creeping down the stairs by this time, but when they found that the wild beast was prowling somewhere about, most of them promptly retreated to their rooms where they fell to praying. A few remained to follow Gordon back to his room. A sudden fear had crept over the young man. Taylor could have followed him for but one purpose. Had he been successful after all in his quest? Gordon found his coat lying on the floor, and a hasty examination revealed the fact that the precious document had been removed from it. Snatching an old-fashioned muzzle-loader from one of the servants, Gordon hastened down the stairs and onto the lawn. A sullen roar down in the direction of the Negroes' quarters guided him in the direction the lion had taken, and which was, Gordon felt sure, the same as that in which Taylor had fled. The moment the Taylor had extricated himself from the bushes, he ran around to the front of the house and down past the Negro shacks, passing out onto the turnpike below them and following that in the direction of Scottsville. He did not know that the lion had followed him imagining instead that the beast had remained to maul and possibly devour Gordon. The thought, while it induced a shudder, was far from unwelcome, since it compassed the elimination of Gordon, and so, as far as Taylor knew, he only witnessed his presence in the Scott home. Behind him, a silent shadow moved along his trail. In long, undulating strides, the great cat stalked its prey. 
Taylor had passed behind the cabins of the Negroes, for several of the blacks were still sitting before their doorsteps strumming on their instruments or gossiping amongst themselves. But the lying had caught a glimpse of the quarry, and so no longer must follow by scent. He had seen Taylor vault the fence onto the turnpike, and without increasing his gait he moved straight toward him. His way led past the darkies. They had been discussing the strange sound they had heard come from the big house. Broken and muffled from having issued from the interior of the house, Ben's single roar had come down to them, half-drowned by the nearer noises of the banjos. One had thought that it might have been the wail of a sick cow. Another had attributed it to Mars Jefferson Scott's ghost. It sounds to me like one of them lines. I done seen them in the circus last fall, ventured a tall, lanky black. Wow, exclaimed the woman. Don't you talk no lines around here. I can't sleep a wink tonight for thinking about them. Show, honey, exclaimed the first speaker. You don't need to worry about no lions while I'm around. I eats em alive, I does. They ain't nothing to be feared of. Why, I seen a white man go right in a cage with ten of them, and he takes a big whip and he lashes them lions just the same as they was mules, just like this. And the darky seized his banjo by the neck and struck out ferociously at imaginary lions. Swinging around to chastise one directly behind him, his eyes fell upon the huge head and glittering eyes of Ben, just protruding from about the corner of the cabin a few paces away. For one brief, horrified instant, the black man stood petrified with terror. His mouth flew agape, his eyes stared from his head, and then, with a blood-curdling shriek, he dove head foremost to the doorway of the cabin. The sudden cessation of his valiant lion-taming had attracted the attention of the others to the direction his eyes had taken. They too saw Ben, but an instant after their fellow had discovered him. Their screams mingled with his, as did their arms and legs and bodies, as the half-dozen negroes launched themselves simultaneously for the same small doorway. Scrambling, clawing, screaming, fighting, they battled for the safety of the interior until they became so tightly wedged in the narrow aperture that they could make no further progress. Ben, surprised into a sudden stop at the first sight of them, now approached majestically, for his way led by their threshold. He paused a moment to sniff at the wildly kicking legs of the tangled mass. The discord of their fear-laden voices must have grated upon his nerves, for, with his mouth close to them, he gave vent to a single mighty roar, and then passed on. The blacks, paralyzed by terror, became rigid and silent as death. Nor did they move again until long after the great beast had passed out of sight. Along the road from Scottsville purred the big Scott car, bearing Mrs. Scott and Virginia from the station to the Oaks. A quarter of a mile below the Negro's quarters, the car came to a stop. "'What's the matter, Jackson?' asked Virginia. "'I don't know, miss,' replied the chauffeur, getting down from his seat and raising one side of the bonnet. For a moment he fussed about between the engine and the control board, trying first the starter, then the horn. "'I guess we all blown a fuse,' he announced presently. "'Have you others, or must we walk the rest of the way?' inquired Mrs. Scott. "'Oh, yes'm, I got some right here,' and he raised the cushion from the driver's seat and thrust his hand into the box beneath. For a moment he fumbled about in search of an extra fuse plug. "'Who's that coming down the road?' asked Virginia. Mrs. Scott and their chauffeur both looked up. They saw a man running now, directly in the middle of the road and coming in the direction of the machine. An instant later another figure bounded into sight behind the man. Mechanically, the chauffeur, while he was watching the approaching man, had slipped a new fuse plug into place. The car was ready to run again, but at sight of the lion, the black lost his head completely, uttered a wild yell of dismay, and bolted for the opposite side of the road, vaulting the fence, and disappeared. Mrs. Scott and her daughter sat as though turned to stone as they watched the frantic efforts of the man to outdistance the grim beast, now rapidly closing up on them. Directly in the full glare of the headlights, not a dozen paces from the car, the lion overtook his prey. With a savage roar and a mighty leap, he sprang full upon Taylor's back, 
hurling him to the ground. Virginia Scott gasped in dismay. In the man's hand was a revolver, and as he fell he rolled upon his back, and, placing the muzzle against the lion's breast, pulled the trigger. But again the jammed weapon failed to work, which was as well for would have but inflamed the rage of the maddened beast without incapacitating him. For an instant the lion stood over his fallen enemy. He raised his head, glaring straight into the brilliant lights of the automobile. Fascinated with the horror of it, the two women watched. They saw Taylor struggling futilely now beneath the huge paw that rested upon his breast. The man's nerve was gone. He whimpered and screamed like a terrified puppy. "'God!' whispered Virginia. "'It's Scott!' Her mother but shuddered and drew closer to her. Aggravated by the struggles and the noise of his prey, Ben lowered his head. His distended jaws were close to Taylor's face. His yellow eyes glared into the fear-mad orbs of the man. From his deep chest there rumbled a thunderous roar. Then his jaws closed like a huge steel trap, and Scott Taylor ceased to be. Mrs. Scott gave a short, involuntary scream and buried her face in her hands. Attracted by the sound, the lion raised his dripping jaws and again eyed the glaring lights. Beyond them he could see nothing, but from beyond them had come the sound of a human cry. Virginia watched the beast intently. Should she and her mother leave the machine and attempt to escape, or were they safer where they were? The lion could easily track them should he care to do so after they had left the car. On the other hand, the strange and unusual vehicle might be sufficient safeguard in itself to keep off a nervous jungle beast. While she was pondering these questions, Ben continued to gaze steadily toward them. Finally he lowered his head to his prey once more, sniffed at it a moment, then seized the body by the shoulder and dragged it a few paces to one side of the road. Here the lion was out of the direct glare of the headlights. Again he looked toward the car. Now he can see it. He cocked his head upon one side and rumbled in his throat. He did not like the looks of the strange thing. What was it? He would investigate. Abandoning Taylor's body, he paced slowly forward toward the car. Mrs. Scott shrank closer to Virginia, too terrified by this time to scream. The girl kept her wits, but still was at a loss as to what move to make, or as to whether she could make any that would be better than remaining rigidly quiet under the lion's investigation. The beast was beside the car now. Leisurely he placed a forepaw on the running board and raised himself until his giant head topped the side of the tonneau. Slowly he intruded his wrinkled muzzle until his nose brushed Virginia's skirt. Mrs. Scott could bear the strain no longer. With a low moan she fainted. Now there was no escape for Virginia. The girl steeled herself to meet the end bravely. The great cat was sniffing at her skirt and growling hideously. End of chapter 9